You can get 10 weeks of The Spectator as well as unlimited access to our website, app and archive if you subscribe today. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash PIMS to get a free bottle of PIMS and 10 weeks of the issue for just £10. That's spectator.co.uk forward slash PIMS. But hurry, it's only while stocks last. Welcome to Holy Smoke, The Spectator's religion podcast. I'm Damien Thompson. If you belong to or care about the Church of England, you may be shocked by some of the things you'll learn in this episode. I'm not referring to the familiar evidence that the established church, in common with all mainstream Christian denominations in Britain, is watching its congregations shrink at a humiliating rate. In 2019, only 690,000 people on average attended CV churches on Sundays, 50,000 fewer than in 2016. And of course, that was before COVID. This is what people mean when they talk about church going falling off a cliff. And it's a desperate problem for a church that faces the impossible challenge of maintaining 16,000 buildings, many of them grade one listed. No, what shocked me was what my guest, the Reverend Marcus Walker, Rector of St Bartholomew the Great in the City of London, revealed about the horrors of the series insatiably greedy and tediously right on bureaucracy. An ever-growing army of administrators and busybodies, he describes their numbers as astronomical, is basically raiding the collection plates of local parishes so they can force-feed churchgoers with their drivel. Now, Marcus Walker is one of the best-connected priests in the Church of England, and one of the bravest. In our interview, he talks candidly about the despoiling, his word, of parishes by the managerial culture promoted by the bishops, which has thrown away more than £240 million on doomed projects to attract new worshippers. These schemes are mostly cack-handed attempts to foist the charismatic evangelical model of church plants on ordinary parishes. doesn't work, of course. And in parentheses, for an idea of just how badly this can go wrong, read, you can Google it, the underreported story of the resignation of the Bishop of Winchester, Tim Dakin, a hardline evangelical whose obsession with megachurches and alleged harassment of vicars led Winchester to be dubbed the Diocese of North Korea. It was a barking mad scheme to create 10,000 lay-led churches that prompted Marcus Walker, writing in The Spectator in July, to launch a Save the Parish campaign that, among other things, encourages parish priests and their congregations to lock away their money so that the power-crazed mediocrities who control the Church of England can't get their hands on it. Trust me, you don't want to miss what the rector of the oldest parish church in the City of London has to say. And once you've listened to him, I don't think you'll be surprised that St Bartholomew's is absolutely thriving under his stewardship. And note to Catholic listeners, I couldn't resist asking Marcus, who's a former deputy director of the Anglican Centre in Rome, what he makes of Pope Francis's campaign to suppress the traditional Latin Mass. And he does have a view. Anyway, here's our conversation, and Marcus begins on a relatively optimistic note. A lot of what we're seeing is happening because the leadership of the Church of England has looked at the numbers quoted, realised that they are falling off a cliff and want to do something about it. 
No, that actually I, I welcome wholeheartedly. You know, the death of Christianity in this country is, I mean, obviously as a Christian, I think it's a tragedy. I think societally it's catastrophic. Um, and I think there are far too many of my brethren in the C of E and in other churches as well. And having spent four years in Rome, your church as well is not immune to this. People who look out at these numbers and go, oh, well, God will provide it and all be all right. So actually, I'm quite pleased that they're taking it seriously. What I think we're seeing here, and it's important to, to separate out some of the, the trends that you've identified. It isn't one big trend. It's a number of trends that are coming together and collectively are actually, I think, strangling the potential for recovery and for growth. So one of them is managerial. And like so many institutions, as the front line gets threatened, the people who are called upon to work out what the solution is are those who are in head office. And head office's solution always seems to be more head office. Paul Kennedy writes about this, that you always get imperial overstretch. And then when you get imperial overstretch, it's the centre that gets beefed up in terms of money and resources. And it's the poor people out at the front line who wind up being ignored, rejected, and then having to retreat further and further back. And you can see this in how many different institutions around the country. The government itself is a classic example of this. The Navy is almost the epitome of it. Um, and there was a study in, in the 1950s, I think, about how, why it was that the number of admirals was increasing when the number of ships was decreasing. And we're seeing that in the C of E now, you know. The number of bishops is ballooning, whilst the number of parishes is uh, contracting. So we've got that. And within, with the number of bishops increasing, then come all of their staff. With all the staff increasing, then you get more staff to service the staff. You've got an astronomical number now of posts being created at a diocesan level. You've got archdeacons expand, number of archdeacons, who are supposed to be the eyes of the bishop, but you only really need one or two in each area or each diocese. Now you're getting, you know, you've got seven or eight. It's perfectly ridiculous. Then you get... Absolutely absurd posts, like the Life of Christ Enabler, and for I think it was Sheffield Diocese. You've got a post for the Director of Justice, Peace and the Integrity of Creation for Southwark Diocese. All these positions that, I mean, that are just sucking away the life from the, from the parishes. And everybody's speaking the same soporific, woke jargon that every institution in society seems to speak now, including the Vatican, I might add. And I'm afraid that your bishop, Sarah Mullally, is a prime offender, but everybody seems to speak the language of CEOs or middle managers, and it's impossible to be infused by it. Yeah, I mean, entirely. <laughs> I will say, you know, my bishop, Bishop Sarah, was one of the only, in fact, I think the only bishop who tried to stand up against the Archbishop of Canterbury when he closed the churches and drove the priests out. And she tried to fight for a compromise on that, and for that, may she be forever blessed. Could you just take us through that episode very briefly? Um, back at the beginning of the pandemic, the bishops of the Church of England decided, first of all, to close the churches before the government closed them. And then, even when the government explicitly permitted priests to go in, pray in their churches, celebrate the Eucharist, record it, broadcast it, live stream it for their congregations, and even those who had never been part of the congregation just wanted some sustenance at home, the bishops met together and decreed that that should be banned for the Church of England and that we must do everything from our homes, indeed from our kitchen tables. And something very similar happened in the Catholic Church. The Catholic bishops in the world couldn't wait to shut their doors. I disagreed with it profoundly and publicly. 
to try to understand it. They, they were they were frightened, and they were frightened for their people. You know, I disagreed with it, but I can understand it. And excited <laughs> by the opportunity to watch lots more afternoon soaps, I think. But anyway, Bishop <laughs> okay. um, Sarah, however, rather bravely stood out alone and said that in her diocese, priests would be able to go into their parish churches if they lived within the curtilage of the parish church or if the parish church were in the curtilage of the rectory, which is the way around it goes, I can't remember, which got her a lot of abuse and uh, hostility from her colleagues, and she ended up having to conform to the norm after about two weeks. But I, I genuinely think that she deserves credit and praise for trying to do that. It's depressing that she had to go into battle with the Archbishop of Canterbury on this subject. Because I remember when Justin Welby was appointed, it was thought that he would bring the best of the efficiency of HTB with a more open-minded attitude to other traditions in the Church of England. He was clever, he'd had this background in the city, personable, friendly. And now every time I speak to one of my clergyman friends, they complain about the culture that he's fostered. And it's the specific complaints about Lambeth Palace. Well... I suppose bringing in the HTV brings in the second strand. I've talked about the managerialism. The second strand is really important as well of what's going on right now. Over the last 30 to 40 years, one of the only examples of growth in the Church of England has come from the charismatic evangelical uh, area, from churches particularly uh, that, that have come out of the Holy Trinity Brompton movement. Uh, the other, interestingly, is cathedrals, which is fascinating and very understudied and underexplored. However, there is a large body of thought, which basically is, if we're going to boil it down, HTB works, the rest of it's dead wood. If we can make the church more HTB, or entirely like HTB, but certainly much more like HTB, that is the way that Christianity will survive in England. It's the only way forward in the 21st century. And you can see that in so many of the models being trialled or forced on parishes around the country where, I mean, fundamentally, the, the vast amount of money that you talked about earlier that's been spent on trying to rejuvenate the Church of England has substantially been spent, though not entirely, but substantially been spent, on projects that follow this kind of a model. And this is in the hope that this will draw people to church, will draw people to Christ. Now, A, the question is, is this true? Is this the only model that can work? And as I've said, for example, you've got cathedrals that are a very good example and, you know, statistically proven example of an alternative model. A lot of the much maligned parish churches, rural churches, actually tell a very different story from the one that we often hear. When you think of when you go to your rural church and you see only 20 people in there, you think, oh gosh, you know, this is a small dying community. But then you go outside and realise there are only 100 people living in the village. The percentage of those actually of the, those in the village actually attending church is considerably higher than you have in a in a large urban sprawl with 150 people attending a charismatic plant. Well, I'm thinking probably those small parish churches are built in a smaller version of the same architectural style as the cathedrals, whose architecture and musical tradition Absolutely. attracts people, and you get a sort of miniature version of it in a traditional Anglican parish, and people like it. You have charismatic evangelicals who are offering something different. And let me just say in HTB's defence, I think a lot of the crude experiments that have been tried, for example, in Winchester Diocese, would never have been sanctioned by Nicky Gumbel with HTB. He's much more flexible than many people give him credit for. So you, you have worship which is infused with a spirit of architectural history and architectural heritage. I won't remind you 
where that heritage comes from. But um, from the Church of England, David. But, but at the time, yes. at the time at which it was under slightly different management. Yes, indeed. Well, you won't find me praising that particular management at the moment. But anyway, yes. let me just make this point. You have what you might call culturally enticing traditional worship. And then you have psychologically and viscerally exciting worship in the better charismatic evangelical parishes. And I don't knock it because the standards of performance and preaching are often very, very high in some of these churches. But then what happens to your bog standard church in a suburb or on a housing estate, which is, even with the best will in the world, it's very, very difficult to give people an engrossing aesthetic or spiritual experience there, unless you have an absolutely outstanding vicar. And for goodness sake, the Church of England is looking after 16,000 churches throughout That's the right. land. And if you look at the attendance figures, there's no way they can be kept open. There are two strands, I think, to this, to this question at this point. The first is that you make the absolutely essential point that evangelical, charismatic evangelical worship works when a lot of money and time is spent on it. Cathedral worship works when a lot of time and money is spent on it. Actually, a lot of trouble hits when people don't have the money and don't have the time to be able to devote to worship being good and prayerful and beautiful and compelling. Time is, of course, an issue when priests find themselves with increasing numbers and only an unsustainable numbers of churches to look after. And money is an issue as more and more is demanded of the local in order to fund the central. And one of the issues that the C of E actually really needs to wrestle with is that you've had a huge despoiling of the local, of the parish system, in order to fund the central without the promises that were made at the time that this despoilation occurred being fulfilled. And by funding the central, you're essentially talking about funding bureaucracy. I'm exactly, precisely talking about funding bureaucracy. So in 1976... With the measure that came in, which essentially took all of the assets, the glebe, land, and everything else from the parishes and invest, invested them in the church commissioners and the Darson funds, the parishes lost a heck of a lot of their independence. Since then, the decision has been taken that when a parsonage is sold, all of these parsonages, having been built or paid for by each parish under an 1836, I think it is, act, which said that every parish had to provide a parsonage for the parson. Uh, the monies that are raised when the vicarage or the rectory is sold go to the diocese or the church commissioners, which means that parishes find themselves essentially funding this ever-growing bureaucracy whilst not having enough money for themselves. And when this happened, the promise was that the stipends would be paid for and housing would always be provided for the priests. But now they find themselves landed with enormous parish share bills so that they have to pay for their parson and for their parsonage. Again, they're being double charged every single year. And this is draining the lifeblood away from them. On top of that, every time I take a wedding or a funeral, most of that money goes to the diocese, not to the parish. Every time I take a funeral or bury somebody or preside at a, crem at a cremation, Outside of the parish bounds, the entire sum goes to the diocese on the grounds, quote-unquote, that the parish church had nothing to do with this service. The diocese said, well, what was I doing at it? 
essentially you're, you're siphoning off the, the money, the hard work, the endowments of generations from the parishes, and then on top of that, sucking out of them the money that they have to raise in their bait sales and their fates on, from the collection plate, and it's all coagulating in the centre. And some of these centres are doing catastrophically badly. Quite a lot of dioceses are and have mismanaged these monies by an enormous amount. And there was a study about four years ago that showed that we've lost £8 billion in the sale of rectories, which is an unthinkable amount. Others are doing very, very well out of it. The church commissioners have grown from their disasters in the 80s where they decided to make about every wrong call you could make. I remember I reported uh, on it in, in the early yes. 90s. An astonishing the, catastrophe. And where they lost 800 million of a 2.4 billion pounds yeah. in yeah. Well, that's now gone up to 9.6 billion. And that was funded by the parishes that basically closed the black hole. But we're still funding it. Well, Marcus, you are a well-connected and very well-respected clergyman in the Church of England. What success have you had in pointing out the disastrous consequences of this approach to people in power? Well, we've changed the narrative. I think that's the biggest thing. It's hugely welcome that over the last... I mean, since, since we launched this, which is the very beginning of August, the number of times that we've heard the Archbishop of Canterbury, the Archbishop of York, lots of different bishops saying how much they love the parish and there's no threat to the parish system and how they really only want to see if they can support the parish which they wouldn't have done four months ago. And what it is you've launched is a campaign called Save the Parish. And if you could tell us That's a bit about that. Really, I suppose it started in the pages of The Spectator about three months ago. Well. After there was a very unfortunate but revealing launch of a great, of a great campaign called Myriad to create 10,000 lay-led churches by 2030, which was welcomed by the Archbishop of Canterbury York, which had the Archbishop of Canterbury York bishop in residence at the launch, where McCann McGinley, who was launching it, made a, a, a little revealing, I suppose that he would now call it a slip of the tongue, but at the time I just think it was what he genuinely thought, which said the wonderful thing about lay-led churches meeting in people's living rooms was that they wouldn't be encumbered by key limiting factors like buildings, stipends and long, costly theological education. Is he an evangelical by any chance? He, he is indeed. Oh, Lord. Yeah. And this caused uproar when it was spotted, because uh, the Church Times reported on it. Quite, I mean, they just reported neutrally what had happened. In fact, people actually realised what this meant. And then you had a hugely embarrassing amount of shuffling backwards and forwards. Well, first of all, it had absolutely nothing to do with the Church of England whatsoever. This was just a rogue canon. Then it was pointed out the bishop to the archbishops was there and had welcomed it. And they said, oh, yes, well, maybe it did have something to do with this, but it's actually just a rogue policy. And then it said, oh, but hold on, there were 10,000 lay-led churches promised in the Archbishop of York's speech that has been pre-released for next week. And they went, oh, yeah, but those are different 10,000 lay-led churches. And what, you mean it's 20,000 churches? And no, no, actually, no, probably it's only 10,000. And by the end of that shuffle, nobody knew where we were. Oh, Lord. But um, that triggered me into sort of flying the flag saying, hold on, guys, if you're angry about this, clergy or laity, this is your church. It isn't the Archbishop's church. It isn't Myriad's church. This is the nation's church, and actually it's got pseudo-democratic structures, and there's a general election coming up. So if you care about this, stand. 
And we held a, a meeting, uh, two excellent people speaking, Professor Alison Milbank, who's a priest and uh, an academic at the University of Nottingham, who's written one of the sort of seminal but grossly underused uh, book on the parish, and Stephen Trott, who's actually served on General Synod and the Church Commissioners I know for about him well, 20 yes, years. Yes, very good guy. And on the back of that, we then sort of set up quite quickly a campaign to get people to stand. And we've got people standing right the way across the country, both for the laity and for the clergy. And we're hoping to have a block of people in Synod actually examining what people are doing, what, what, what proposals are coming up, and actually every single time trying to work out how we're funneling money back to the parishes away from the centre. But with only 690,000 people going to Anglican services in England... On a Sunday. There's, on a Sunday, on a Sunday. And if you add on top of that, the people who are going midweek, I think we're still topping a million, and the pattern of people's lives since the general removal of Sunday trading laws has meant that for a lot of people, the only services they can attend are midweek. I think that's probably just a little bit of icing on the cake. The general trend, and it's a trend for all mainstream denominations everywhere in the Western world, is downwards and quite rapidly yes. downwards. So there's a limit to how many of these parishes you can save. So tell yes. me, how do you save those parishes that can be saved and what do you do about those that can't, of which is an enormous number? And of course, it's a problem for the Catholic Church yes. as well, identical problem. Almost. Well, the first thing is, it's got to come from the local. People locally are going to have much more of a feel of how to do it than if it's determined from the top. Partially because when things, what we've spotted as churches have been closing, is that when a decree comes down from Caesar Augustus that St. Tribes Wives, Little Norrington, has to close, and Caesar Augustus thinks that all of the people of St. Tribes Wives are going to go along to St. Mary's Upper Norrington, they just don't go. Actually, we've got to work these things out on the ground, and people have got to have the ability to object to foolish policies whilst being able to create their own policies. The second thing is, we're going to need a new relationship between church and state about buildings. Because the Church of England looks after the largest number of grade one listed buildings in the country. And as you say, a dwindling number of people looking after these buildings is going to mean that more and more of them are going to be closed and turned into Burger Kings and swimming pools and things like that. And actually, this is the architectural history of the nation. And we're going to have to work out what to do about it and how to deal with that in a way that satisfies both the broader and now quite secular state and maintains the prefal reality of these buildings. So what are the immediate practical steps a parish that can be saved should take in order to ensure its survival? Um, they personally put everything they've got into a trust. Get it out of the way of picking and stealing hands from above. <laughs> The second thing is, I suppose, it's to work out how to make sure that their priests can actually do priestly things and not administrative things. The more that you drain the lifeblood, the soul out of a priest, the less that the priest can do the things that will actually draw people into that church. But that leads on to my final question, which is, as far as I can work out, the vocational policy in both the Catholic and the Anglican churches, and no doubt the free churches as well, has been to attract an awful lot of people who are very politicised. So you get this toxic and supremely boring mixture of managerial thinking and what we now call woke rhetoric. Now, the Church of England has always leaned a bit to the left, probably back in the days of 
Ramsey and Coggan, but certainly quite markedly so in the, the 80s and 90s. And now we're hearing really quite alarmingly politicised rhetoric from your bishops, for example. They're unquestioning support for Black Lives Matter. I know that there's one charity whose patrons include senior bishops, which is supporting Extinction Rebellion, for goodness sake. And there seems to be, in fact, we know there is a really unfortunate gap between the political attitudes and the entire worldview of Church of England clergy and those people in the pews. I mean, for example, a number of Church of England clergy who voted for Brexit were minuscule, certainly compared to those of regular Church of England worshippers. I think a majority of them actually voted for Brexit. But the point is that only one political worldview seems to be represented in official statements. Yes, I mean, I've got to be very careful about condemning politically-minded clergy. What is that? Being fairly politically-minded myself, but just in dissent from most of my colleagues. So with this, with the, to, to avoid any charges of hypocrisy, knowing the vast glass house that I stand in, I'm not necessarily going to condemn them for being political, or indeed to condemn myself for it. I think I'll reflect, reflect this way. I think the, the disjunction between the political views of the clergy and the political views of the laity is huge. And the number of times that I've heard members of the laity say just how outraged and deeply, deeply offended, I mean, not offended in a kind of, you know, I'm officially offended, but actually, you know, deeply to the core hurt at essentially hearing themselves described as bigots and such like from the pulpit. Well, the number of times I've heard that is it, 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 huge. And we really do. There's a question for everybody who is being political in the church to ask how we can relate to those who disagree with us. And I would say never to be political from the pulpit because it's an abuse. It is an abuse, indeed, absolutely. But there's a broader, I think there is a broader question that ties in the managerialism and ties in an awful lot of the political posturing that we see. But it's also, so, it's also quite low-grade political posturing, which is sad to see. I think what it is, is that it's the loss of confidence in the core message of the gospel and the loss of confidence in the church itself. And the promotion of the wrong people. And since I'm so intensely critical of senior Catholic clergy, including the Pope, let me single out the Archbishop of York, Stephen Cottrell, whose speeches are simply toe-curlingly embarrassing and naive and annoying. I think since the Prime Minister withdrew his interest in appointing bishops under Gordon Brown, We've had a very unfortunate position where, A, we've had one gatekeeper for the episcopacy in the form of the archbishop's appointment secretary, only one gatekeeper. And when the Crown Nominations Commission meets to, to recommend a name, because they're only recommending a name and they need to reach a two-thirds majority, they always go for whoever is the compromise candidate, which means you never get, OK, well, we can put the rogue person in and we can put the sensible person in and the prime minister can choose between them which is much less likely to get anybody who isn't safe now. And we've got to work out how actually to, to rejig that system such that we can have interesting and exciting people with a diversity of views rather than simply a diversity of sex. I couldn't agree more. Actually, I do want to slip in one last question. You're an sure. Anglican who spent a lot of time in Rome, in the Anglican mm. Centre in Rome. You're an Anglican priest who celebrates traditional Anglican services, including some using the Book of Common Prayer. What do you make of the suppression of the traditional Latin worship of the Catholic Church by the Pope? Well, I mean, 
I suppose I'm not going to be safe here. I, I think it's a great sadness when any of us think that the way that we have found God is the only way that other people will find God. It's absolutely noticeable that most of my friends who are Roman Catholic, across, for example, the political spectrum, some of them are desperately left-wing, some of them right-wing, some of them in the middle. But most of the people that I know who, who are Roman Catholic, particularly those who converted it, have a great love for the traditional Latin mass. And that's where they found God, and that's where they found their sustenance. And one of the things that I love about the C of E is that we've got Nicky Gumbel and HGB among us, and it's a type of worship that I could never find would draw me to God, but it does draw others. And you've got me with a high mass, or with choral evensong, which I know would leave those many who go to HTB absolutely stone cold. I'm reassured, because let's not forget that when the Tridentine Mass was first abolished, it was non-Catholics, such as Agatha Christie, for example, who drew attention to the cultural vandalism that was taking place. <laughs> Marcus Walker, I'm very grateful to you, and I hope you'll come back very soon so that we can resume our conversation. Likewise. Thank you very much, David. That was the rector of St. Bartholomew the Great in the City of London, the Reverend Marcus Walker. And probably some of you are thinking, oh God, Damien just had to get in something about the Latin Mass. But I think there's a serious point here, which is that both the Catholic Church and the Church of England are, it's now very clear, being swamped by a very similar culture. A highly secularised, deeply unimaginative, and intolerant culture, whose adoption, I think, is more of a threat to Christianity than anything the avowedly secularist enemies of religion can dream up. So let me put on my broken record yet again and say that, in my opinion, there is no future for institutional Christianity until people like the Archbishop of York, Stephen Cottrell, or that great persecutor of the Latin Mass, Archbishop Arthur Roach in Rome, or, for that matter, the current Pope and the current Archbishop of Canterbury are no longer promoted by their fellow mediocrities. So let's forget about doctrinal ecumenism and unity, which is a lost cause anyway, and think about the possibility of some of the bright, young, pious clergy in both the Anglican and Catholic churches comparing notes so that they can affect what is most desperately needed, and that is regime change in both their churches.